Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay, but there's an injustice that I think I need to address. A deep-sea injustice. See, there is a certain murder-nosed fish out there that I think is in dire need of rebranding. When it comes to murder-nosed fish, you basically got your big three. You got your narwhal, which I know is technically a whale, but, you know, close enough. It's got a name that sounds both vaguely mythological and kind of piratey, and ends in whale, so that's pretty good. You got your swordfish, which, if you're a fish with a sword on your face, kind of tough to beat. Go with the classic. And then, I mean, to a lesser extent, you got your sawfish, but it's my understanding that the saws on those guys are all show, no go. So, to use my favorite academic cop-out, that falls outside of the purview of this study. Which leaves us to the odd fish out when it comes to murder-faced fishes. I am talking, of course, about the marlin. You're telling me that this enormous fish, with a sword for a nose every bit as deadly as its lucky cousin the swordfish, plus he's got a majestic sail like an undersea Demetrodon, can't do better than being named after one of the Lesser Wayans brothers? It's not even like this thing's named Keenan. So here's my proposal. We rename the marlin the Tunicorn. Deadly, delicious, probably magical. This fish has got it all. All right, now that we have addressed one aquatic injustice, it's time to look into another. That's right. We're finally going to find out what happened with Aqualad and the Freshmaker. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme isn't a rhyme. It was submitted by Bruce Bow, and I guess we could call it a synopsis prosaic pastiche? Let's go with that. The Call of Tighten Up the Defense The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the podcast to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of internet, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. Hub and Cory, each straining in his own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of the Bronze Age, and of our frightful relationship thereunto, that we shall either go mad from the revelation, or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new synopsis. Synopsis? Thanks, Bruce. That was very strange and eldritch. Teen Titan Spotlight Number 10 May 1987 Scar Tissue Written by John Ostrander Drotted by Eric Larson Inkted by Romeo Tangal Lettered by John Workman Colored by Adrienne Roy Edited by Barbara Randall And Marv Wolfman is credited as the creative editor? 
I suspect they had to get very creative indeed to figure out a way to work Wolfman's name into these credits. Teen Titan Roll Call! Aqualad! Hooray! Titans who kind of seem like they're in this book, but aren't really. Aqua Girl! Beast Boy! Wonder Girl! Cyborg! Jericho! Nightwing! Speedy! The Hawk! The Flash! The Wally West one. And Robin, the Jason Todd one, probably. Previously in New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly inappropriate amount of comic book time ago, Starfire was busy getting space married. Nightwing was sullenly celebrating a bad birthday as the third wheel on his space girlfriend's honeymoon. And Raven was being brainwashed by Brother Blood. So the Titans found themselves a little short-handed. The government needed some uncredentialed, colorfully-costumed teenagers to go on a top-secret spy mission for them, so Wonder Girl flipped through her Super Rolodex and called up former Teen Titans, Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, Speedy, The Hawk, and Aqualad, hooray, to fill out the roster. For some reason, she also brought along Jason Todd, the 12-year-old who had recently taken up the role of Robin. Good decision-making all around. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the mission didn't go great. Aqualad was uncharacteristically nihilistic because he still hadn't gotten over the death of his romantic partner, Tula, aka Aquagirl, who had been killed during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Nevertheless, Aqualad decided to stick around and lend the Titans a hand on their next mission, as they attempted to subdue Beast Boy's adopted father, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America who had recently seen some cosmic horror something or other, and succumbed to his debilitating addiction to wearing a reality-warping magic hat. The magic hat in question was called the Mento Helmet, so I call it, and Steve when he's wearing it, the Freshmaker. And in addition to further fraying Steve's already tenuous grasp on reality, it also granted him the power to do pretty much whatever. A fresh-makered-up Steve decided to murder Beast Boy, which frankly sounds understandable, and the rest of the Titans which doesn't. To aid him in his sun-slaughtering sojourn, the Freshmaker slapped together a whole wacky pack of dead-or-dying super-powered hostages, who he mentally subjugated and forced to do his bidding. He called this collection of unfortunate individuals the Hybrid, and he sent them to attack his perceived foes, the Teen Titans, in a series of epic battles. During one such skirmish, Aqualad heroically allowed himself to be kidnapped by the Freshmaker's forces, in hopes that this would allow the other Titans to track Steve to his lair. Our titular teenage heroes vowed to do just that, and prepared to storm Steve's stronghold, and free their aquatic ally at any cost. Then they got distracted and forgot. Gadzooks! When will the Teen Titans remember that they left their friend in the clutches of a malevolent, hat-addled madman? What secret fear lurks deep within Aqualad's psyche? And what secret fear lurks deep within Steve Dayton's psyche? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... They won't. Ever, as near as I can tell. Damn it, Titans! That he won't be able to protect the people he loves most. Aw. And that Beast Boy will be mean to him at a circus. Okay, so you ready for the synopsis? Here goes. Whole bunch of really trippy shit happens, then Aqualad escapes from the Freshmaker. The end. I mean, there's a little more to it than that. The trippy shit takes up most of the book, and I'll go into the details. But if you want the story of what happens, 
There it is. You can skip ahead to me and Corey's conversation if you want. Should be starting at around the 18 minute 30 second mark. Okay, is everyone that's still here interested in the longer version? Here we go. Aqualad finds himself swimming around in the middle of the ocean and thinks to himself, What happened? The undisputed greatest Teen Titan of all time has no idea where he is or how he got there. He has the vague impression that there's something important he's supposed to remember, but he has no idea what that might be. Suddenly, the sea-strengthened super teen finds himself at the entrance of an ornate undersea temple. He goes inside and finds that it's oddly familiar looking. He's approached by a strange crown-wearing guy who looks oddly familiar. Why, it's King Thar, Aqualad's biological father. Him showing up out of nowhere is pretty surprising. First of all, Thar was always pretty paranoid that his evil wizard brother, Slizath, was going to kill him, and he never went anywhere without an armed guard and a stockpile of magic weapons. But mostly, King Thar's sudden appearance is surprising because he died before Aqualad was ever born. Huh. Thar starts acting all squirrely and insinuating that everyone's out to get him, which makes a fair amount of sense. Getting murdered has got to really shake a guy's faith in humanity. Or... Atlanteanity, or whatever. Thar's wife, Bera, shows up and tries to get her husband to chill out. Probably worth pointing out that Bera is pregnant, presumably with Aqualad? At this point, Aqualad is pretty sure he knows what's going on. He does? The aquatic ace is like, Oh, I bet I time-traveled. That's why I'm all woozy. Time-travel hangovers are the worst. Let's see. Gotta remember not to step on any butterflies, and don't touch baby me once I'm born. Thank goodness I watched Time Cop last time I time-traveled to 1994. Ah, time travel. Yeah, that explains everything. Well, everything except what Nightwing and Jericho are doing here, because they just showed up, and they are looking unusually evil. Hmm. Jericho flashes a grin that has way too many teeth in it then uses his creepy mutant power to hop into Aqualad's body. Over Garth's vocal objections, Evil Joey forces the marine teen to kill his own father. Unsettling. Also unsettling is the fact that once Thar is dead, his body turns into that of Aquaman. Starting to seem less and less like time travel. Jericho hops back into his own body, and he and Nightwing drag Bera out of the throne room. Aqualad tries to pursue but he's stopped by a giant robot. He recognizes the automaton as one he had previously defeated a while ago when he was investigating his heritage, but after he makes that connection, the robot's image shifts, and suddenly, it has the head of Cyborg. Only, it's an evil version of Cyborg, whose dialogue borders on racial caricature. Yeah. Evil Cyborg is mean to Aqualad, so Aqualad grabs a laser gun and shoots his head off. Evil Cyborg's head keeps sassing Aqualad, but the deep-sea do-gooder is intent on rescuing his mom, and maybe his prenatal self? So he doesn't stick around to hear it. He rushes outside, and finds himself at the gates of the domed undersea city of Atlantis. He tries to explain to the guards that he needs to get inside, but they're like, Nah, you're exiled. Go away. Gar's like, Exiled? Why? Suddenly, Beast Boy pops up. 
The anamorphic adolescent doesn't seem as evil as his corrupted, crime-fighting counterparts did, but he does seem shiftier than normal, and is dressed like a used car salesman. He's like, I'll tell you why you're exiled. You got purple eyes, which Atlanteans think means you're a mutant. And your name's Garth, which sounds like Garndanuth, which is the name of an ancient wizard. So everybody figures they're a reincarnation to him and they banished you, see? Because they figured you're a reincarnated mutant wizard. Everything Beast Boy just said is canonically part of Aqualad's backstory at this point. But Beast Boy manages to say it in a way that makes it sound even more like ridiculous nonsense than it usually does. Aqualad is like, whatever, Gar. Fuck off. I'm not going to engage. Which is the correct reaction to Beast Boy saying things. Suddenly, Aqualad is no longer at the gates of Atlantis. He finds himself thrust into the midst of the undersea battle that took place during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, the one Tula died during. Yikes. This time, the battle is going just differently enough that Aqualad thinks he might be able to save Tula. He starts swimming towards her, but is intercepted by bizarrely cartoonish versions of Wonder Girl, The Hawk, Robin, Speedy, and The Flash. They're all dressed like 1950s or 60s parodies of their respective personalities. Donna is like, Hey, what are you rescuing Aqua Girl for? We need you to help us in our rumble tonight. Titans forever, remember? Aqualad brushes her and the other Titans aside, and zooms over to rescue Tula. When he arrives, Aqua Girl is looking injured, but as though she might survive. Carrying her in his arms, Garth rockets through the sea as fast as his famously sea-strengthened limbs can carry him. He makes a beeline back to Atlantis, where he's sure the expert healers there will be able to revive her. But by the time he lands in the throne room and has Queen Mara summon the royal physicians, the young woman in his arms has turned into a skeleton. Mara, who had at first greeted the distressed hero kindly, is suddenly cold and sneering. Also, I can't remember for sure if it's weird that Mera herself is alive in this scene. 1987 might or might not have been one of those times when she was dead, or at least one of the times when Aquaman thought she was dead, because he wasn't really paying attention. I'm pretty sure that happened at least a couple of times. Either way, I guess it's a moot point, because within a few seconds, this lady isn't Mera anymore. She turns into Aqualad's mom, Bera, and then turns into a skeleton. The skeleton berates Aqualad. Turns out, Aqualad really hates getting lectured by his skeleton mom. He gets super pissed off and yells so hard that he shatters reality. Dang! I guess it would be more accurate to say that he yells so hard that he shatters unreality. Because after his freakout, we see that the amphibious adolescent has been floating in a tank in Steve's lab this whole time while the Freshmaker has been fucking with his brain. Dick move, Steve. Aqualad also thinks that this was a dick move on Steve's part. When the Freshmaker starts gloating that he's just gonna Dennis Quaid his way back into Aqualad's dreamscape, Aqualad is like, Nuh-uh, not if I Dennis Quaid you first. See, normally, Aqualad's telepathic powers only work on fish, but... For some nebulous comic book reason, since the Freshmaker poked into Aqualad's brain first, Garth can use his powers on him and battle Steve on the mental plane. Which is kind of like the astral plane, I guess, but with less geometric shapes and more personal trauma. 
After a brief mental struggle, Steve suddenly finds himself in the center ring of a circus, and his dead pals from Doom Patrol are watching him. And also, Beast Boy is riding a tricycle and slapping him with a fish. And also, also, Steve is a jack-in-the-box. So, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say this is some more dreamscape-type shit. The Doom Patrol audience starts to look more and more skeleton-y as they applaud Beast Boy's Piscine Steve abuse. Eventually, Steve can take no more. Like Aqualad before him, the Freshmaker freaks the fuck out and yells his way out of the dreamscape. Once again, Steve Dayton and Aqualad find themselves locked in psychic battle on the mental plane. The two titans of telepathy cerebrally struggle against one another, trying to find a weakness in their respective adversaries' psychological armor. Simultaneously, hero and villain alike stumble across their foe's vulnerability, and both are shocked at how closely their traumas mirror one another. At the center of Steve's most tender memory is his dead wife Rita, a.k.a. Elastigirl. And at the center of Aqualad's is Aquagirl, a.k.a. Tula. The recognition of one another's pain causes a psychic wave of feedback that sends them reeling and staggering off the mental plane and back to consensus reality. Jeez, can you imagine if both of the ladies in their lives had been named Martha? Nah, that would have just been stupid. The glass in the tank which had been holding Aqualad captive shatters, and the exhausted Atlantean falls to the ground. He reaches out to Steve and is like, Jeez, sorry about your wife. I guess we're not so different, you and... But Steve cuts him off and is like, Get the fuck out of here. Just go and never come back. In fact, if you do try to come back, I'll pop some shit into your brain that makes you think you've been out of water for a super long time, and you will just go ahead and die. Now fuck off. So, Aqualad fucks off. Hooray? As he swims away, Aqualad reflects on the nature of grief and healing, as he thinks about a quote from a noted fascism advocate. The End So yeah, like I said, a whole bunch of really trippy shit happens, and then Aqualad escapes from the Freshmaker. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good, you know, enjoying what, when I first moved here, people referred to as liquid sunshine, which is just rain, which still doesn't make any darn sense to me. And I think I've complained about that on the show before, but it's nice enough. Yeah, as a change of pace, it's okay. Liquid sunshine to me always sounds like it might be slang for, like, blotter acid, you know? Sure. I have been having, for the most part, a pretty good day. I reorganized the comic book room yesterday, which is one of my favorite things to do. And I found an old notebook that had a bunch of lyrics that I was working on, like, 15 or 16 years ago. Oh, wow. I had forgotten about this, but at one point... My band had decided that it was kind of cliche for rap groups to do songs about how tough they were. So instead, we were going to do a song about how tough Tom Hanks was. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, Let me share with you some of the lyrics to this. Okay. Not kicking chumps butts would make Tom Hanks sick. Just knows one way to roll, and that's Tom Hanks slick. Never late on the set, because he's Tom Hanks quick. Punched a hole in a bear with his Tom Hanks dick. 
that poor bear. Keeps his Oscars in his butt to counterweight his balls. <laughs> Defeated Andre the Giant in a best of three falls. And then there's a whole bunch more. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a shame that never uh, made it to the recording studio. I know. Were we so rich we could afford to leave gold just lying on the studio floor? Apparently so. Well, speaking of weird things that don't make a ton of sense, you want to talk about this comic book? I guess that's why we're here. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I would say it's in some ways a refreshing change from the usual kind of art and storytelling that we're used to getting in the New Teen Titans. It definitely has that weird, like, oh, I'm having a bad dream quality. Yeah, and I feel like that can be a little bit hackneyed, but I gotta say, I loved this issue. I felt like it all worked for me. Like I said, I know that the I'm having a dream so everything is all weird trope can be a little bit overdone, but in this one I felt like the writing and the artwork really worked well together, and even little touches like the lettering contributed to it. There was just a lot going on in it, and if I'm honest with myself, it's an Aqualad solo story, which we just don't get a hell of a lot of. Yeah, I, I think that would definitely be uh, one of the influences with your, your positive feelings on it. <laughs> I was kind of disturbed by the, I guess, the conflict between the goofy nonsense art with really traumatic, awful shit that's going on. Yeah, but I felt like that actually worked. I agree, it was disturbing, but I think that was the effect it was going for, and it worked. We saw Eric Larson's art, specifically Eric Larson's like mid-80s art, a few issues ago in New Teen Titans number 33. And this is him again, but I feel like his really stylized approach to the art makes so much more sense in this context where it's in service to this feeling of delirium and disease. And he transitions through so many different art styles to convey so many different tones within it that I agree that it was disturbing, especially for whatever reason, all the fucking teeth in this issue freaked me the fuck out. Mm -hmm. There were so many teeth mm -hmm. and like so many different kinds of weird stylized teeth. You get the rows of fangs which i'm used to seeing in like the super wide grin that became kind of a hallmark of mid-90s comic book art but you also see whenever anybody has their mouth open just these weird fucking stalagmites and stalactites of dentistry just going all over the map and it freaked me the fuck out yeah i noted that i noted also what i think you had commented on last time the signature kind of pompadour effect that, mm -hmm. uh, some of the characters, and especially Aqualad, in some panels have. Yeah, I mentioned the letterer too. It's a guy named John Workman who worked a lot with this writer. This is John Ostrander who wrote this issue, and he became, from this point going forward, a much bigger name in comic books. But this is right when he was having his big like come up. I feel like he had started doing a series called Grimjack, which is where he first kind of got a little bit popular. Mm. And then from there, he moved over to DC. And he kept doing Grimjack for first comics. But he was the writer for the Legends miniseries, which was kind of the project that put the Justice League back together after Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
And he also started the Suicide Squad series uh, and was the writer of that and had a really long sustained and pretty consistent run on that title. And I really liked that series growing up. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in this issue, there's an ad kind of in the middle of it for the Suicide Squad that's made up of all these like wanted posters. Mm-hmm. And it's got his name on there. And I was like, oh. Okay, that's right. Yeah, and he and the letterer, John Workman, worked together on this book. And honestly, when I first opened the book, the first page really had me going, oh, I don't know about this. Because we're used to 80s Aqualad looking like a young Tom Jones. And in this, when you first open it up, he looks like a young Lou Reed. (laughs) Did you hear a mumbling soul man (laughs) to himself? I could hear it in my heart. Oh, and I didn't care for that it. That is disturbing. Soul, man. But also, like I said, the lettering just doesn't quite feel right. Like, it's fine for the captions, but for the word bubbles, there's just an odd use of negative space in it. But as you get into the comic book more, you still do see that. But I think it might be intentional and just lending to a sense of unease because he also just does a tremendous job with all of the sound effects in this he's the letterer who worked with walt simonson on his run on thor and like those sound effects are really iconic and you get a taste of that here and it's just i i feel like it's one of those where it's just like everything comes together and creates this very specific but still very eclectic tone for the book and it might just be a matter of the subject matter forgiving what would I would otherwise view as mistakes, but it just all worked for me. Yeah, I, I overall was really pleased with this one, if uncomfortable. Well, you can't say you weren't warned. Like, when you look at the cover of this book, I don't think you could look at that and be like, oh, this is going to be a pretty normal straight-ahead story, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it is... I don't know if psychedelic's the right word. There's elements of psychedelia, but the funhouse mirror, lots of teeth. I mean, I look at it and I can't think anything other than Bill Sienkiewicz, which is the artist on this. He's one of my favorite artists. And this is the first time I've seen him do a DC comic. I didn't know he had worked for DC at all during the 80s. He's, in my mind, kind of synonymous with his collaborations with Frank Miller on Daredevil stuff and the New Mutants, and his early stuff on Moon Knight. He just creates this very specific, yeah, kind of surreal, but just Bill Sienkiewicz look. And it is in full force on this, but with more clean delineation and bright primary colors than I'm used to seeing from him. And I think that speaks to the different aesthetic that DC had than Marvel. Yeah, it's a great cover. Are you familiar with Bill Sienkiewicz? No, no. I, I mean, based on what you just said, I feel like I should be. Did you do you know the Electra Assassin miniseries? Mm-hmm. That was him. OK. And yeah, he has that very specific, very stylized tone. And he's one of my favorite artists. Yeah. OK, I can see that. So once you get into the issue, you can definitely be like, well, yeah, I, I was warned straight up. If I didn't want to see this shit, I got nobody to blame but myself. Or my brother. Tough but fair. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, this is an Aqualad-centric issue, and 
we really haven't seen a lot of those, not just in Teen Titans, but as near as I can tell in DC Comics. And to me, that kind of gets highlighted by the fact that they focused on the elements of his past that they did. Probably close to like a third of what he's dealing with in this book comes from three backup stories in Adventure Comics from 1978. Hmm. Between Adventure Comics number 453 and 455 is where you get the whole backstory of his parentage. And it seems like such a deep cut. But at the same time, what else are you going to go from? There just hasn't been that much focus on Aqualad in the past. Yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff, actually. Or if I did, I had forgotten what a kind of traumatic existence that he had had. And uh, there's even more of that kind of exposition where uh, Beast Boy is doing his, like, uh, Max Headroom circus announcer thing. Okay, it's not Max Hedrum. When he's doing that, that is very specifically him doing the John Lovitz character, the pathological liar. Oh, man. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. Was that an SNL skit? It was. He was the guy who'd be like, yeah, to my wife, Christy Brinkley. Yeah, that's the ticket. That's the ticket. I can see and hear John Lovitz doing that, but I, I don't remember the skit. It was a recurring character that he had that he had actually done before he joined Saturday Night Live on the Johnny Carson show, too. But he was a member of a group called Pathological Liars Anonymous. And as he would be describing the organization, he would just start making up ridiculous lies about himself. Mm. But that's very specifically what Gar is referencing there. And there's a couple of very specific references in this book, which we'll probably get into more in the timestamps. But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying about Gar? Well, just speaking of the deep cuts that you were making, this reference to that his name sounds like a corruption of this ancient evil sorcerer's name. I really like that bit. That's one of my favorite bits in the comic because it really underlines how ridiculous and made up sounding. Because, I mean, obviously it is made up, but... The complicated nature of comic book characters' backstories, especially in the Silver and Bronze Age, were where you have him pretty much very straightforwardly giving a section of Aqualad's backstory, but just the tone and the vocal tics that are inserted there really highlight how ridiculous it all is. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty cleverly done. I was wondering what your take on something was. We see the titans that appear in this book in Aqualad's subconscious as it is being manipulated by Steve Dayton, we see them appear as these horrific monsters, basically, and caricatures of those characters. Do you think that comes from Aqualad's subconscious, or is that the way Steve Dayton sees the titans? Oh, I just had assumed it was like Aqualad's subconscious but you know kind of corrupted by whatever fear juice Dayton had had injected in there what i could not figure out is who is the football player guy oh that's hawk that's hawk oh okay yeah so that is one of the odd choices that is made in this book and it makes sense in a certain way because that has been at this point aqualad's most recent appearance was from new teen titans volume 2 number 20 through 26, but that is the version of the Teen Titans that is there. It's Donna being the team leader, 
that recruited him to come back to the Titans. So that's that lineup that she re-recruited. So that's not Dick Grayson as Robin. That's supposed to be Jason Todd. Mm-hmm. And that's why Hawk is there, but not Dove. And uh, they're about to go fight with Cheshire and her goofs, who you see are all dressed in the ski lodge equipment. Oh, man, it's all coming together now. Yeah, I remember that that issue. But it's weird that they do draw on that, but not any of his original Teen Titans appearances, which was where my mind went initially when I saw that. So I think that might be a sign that it is Steve Dayton's version of these characters, that he's maybe using elements from Aqualad's memory to create his own narrative, but it's his version of the Titans. So it'd be the ones that he has interacted with. And that's maybe why you see that Nightwing doesn't do a hell of a lot in this comic book, despite his very long backstory with Aqualad. Mm. And also the fact that Starfire doesn't appear in this issue at all. Yeah, that makes sense. The Nightwing and Jericho appearance at the beginning is pretty damn creepy. It is super creepy. And I think even more creepy, to me at least, was Cyborg's appearance in that. And I think that would also maybe be a sign that it is Steve Dayton's interpretation of those characters, because his version of Cyborg fucking sucks. And also seems like it is leaning into a very caricatured version of African-American vernacular, even more so than the Marv Wolfman version of that character does. Yeah, I definitely made a note of that also. I mean, he's only in four panels and we got a mebby count to three. Like, it is turned up really high in a way that's really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did not care for that. What I did appreciate, and I think we'll get into this in the fashion bit, is that that robot's like chest logo looks like he could be part of a rap crew called the Yu-Tang Clan. Yeah, just that it didn't feel like springing for the W, it's just they went with the single U. Mm-hmm. But it has that, that same look as their logo, which predates them, of course. But it, it may have been an influence. I know generally, it totally does, yeah. I know generally they are more Marvel fans, but, you know, maybe they uh, they followed Sinkevich over and were like, oh yeah, okay. This Aqualad kid's alright. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think probably... Mm, let's say the genius did that. I was going to say that's a Jizza call. Yeah. Sure. We talked a little bit about the pathological liar version of Gar that appears in this book, but the other version of Gar that we get is even more disturbing. The sadistic clown version of Beast Boy who shows up in full circus gear and keeps smacking Steve Dayton in the head with a fish and calling him Daddy. It's horribly creepy. It's so bad. It is so creepy. And the noise that it makes when he whacks him with the fish is waka. <laughs> the sound effects in this issue, we don't have that category for the new Teen Titans anymore, but the sound effects in this issue were amazing. Not only in what they are spelled out as phonetically, but in their graphic depiction, they are so good. I know, I was missing the uh, sound effects category on this one. Yeah, the different font experimentation in this too, because when we see that Steve Dayton is having his circus hallucination, 
the robotic laughter of the dead characters is portrayed by just typewriter font at the bottom of ha 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 all in lower cases. And that's so weird and creepy and dreamlike. Yeah, and the same when they're clapping. It's just a string of letters spelling out clap, 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 clap. Yeah. Oof. They've all got skull faces, including Robot Man, which makes no sense that he would have a skull because he's like all exoskeleton. Mm-hmm. And also isn't dead the way the rest of Doom Patrol is. Yeah, just a weird, very specific choice that was made that, yeah, like I said, it it really worked for me. I can also totally see where it might not work for people, and this may not have been the most popular issue, but it's taken some really big swings, and I appreciated for the most part how it went. One point of mild contention that I would have would be we talked about Gar hitting his dad in the face with a fish and calling him Daddy in like this weird Polly Shore type way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, and this is probably the only context I would say this in, but him saying in a Polly Shore way would be the less creepy way to interpret it. That's not something you hear every day. No. But the fish stuff in it. We see that once again, Aqualad has the power to, I don't know, hyper-literalize any fish metaphor into a literal use of his powers. <laughs> because he says, oh, you fucked up, Steve. You opened a mental channel between us, and I can swim up river through that channel. I was like, wait, wait, What? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what kind of channel? Like a, the like an English channel channel. <laughs> right, because I control fish, and uh -huh. it's a water metaphor. And so that means that I can use my telepathic powers, which work only on fish, to take over your brain and your Mentos hat. And I'm glad it works, but unless that is somehow because Steve Dayton is tapped into dream logic, Aqualad can use dream logic to fight him in like a I don't know Nightmare on Elm Street 3 kind of way mm. I don't really see how that works yeah there was kind of a, a dreamscape slash dream warriors quality to the end yeah man I talked before just about like the way that the artwork changes throughout and it starts off with as I said like this weird like Aqualad looking kind of like Lou Reed type thing and then on the very next page, it goes into a much more, like, Silver Age look, almost. You get thicker lines, and you get a more cartoonish style that reminds me almost of, like, Ramona Freyden. And then that starts merging into this weird, hyper-violent anime style as it goes on, and it becomes more clear that something weird is going on with his psyche. Mm -hmm. And the way that that culminates... And the way that Steve Dayton sees Aqualad when Aqualad is taking over the Mentos hat is so disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it continues to play with perspective, but just stretches it in such a creepy way. Yeah, it really reminds me a lot of, like, 1990s anime. But part of what makes that work for me is that it is punctuated by these snaps back to a more typical DC house style that we're used to seeing the Titans in. Every, like, third or fourth page, when you get that they are back in the 
more consensus reality inhabited by the rest of the Teen Titans, you'll get these panels where it's just like, oh, now that they recognize where they are and they're in Steve Dayton's lab, boop, everything's normal style. And it's so jarring. Yeah, it works, you know. It does. And I think a big part of what makes it work is having an artist like Romeo Tangal on the inks who has such a line of continuity to the other Titans titles that we've read. One thing that didn't work for me, and this is probably the thing that I liked least about the issue, is the quote at the end. Mm. The quote itself is fine. It's about the nature of courage and vulnerability and moving on from trauma. And I understand that. But I would maybe just not quote Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Because, you know, she was a Nazi. Oh, Jesus, really? Yeah, she was married to Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, uh-huh. and shared with him. They were big, strong supporters of the America First Party and preached isolationism, and both were explicit. Actually, she was more explicit than he was in her praise of Hitler, and also penned a 40-page, like, piece of fascist propaganda called The Wave of the Future, which, when I read that that was what it was called, I was like, oh man, I wish we hadn't tried to use that as a slogan for a little while. Oh. But with The Wave of the Future that she was referring to was basically embracing fascism. Uh, and this was in, like, 1940, just before the U.S. got involved in World War II. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if you publish fascist propaganda and are a Nazi sympathizer, maybe you don't get to be a motivational calendar? Yeah, dang. I, I had no idea. I, you know, I googled the quote in the book and everything. I was like, okay, uh, married to Charles Lindbergh, blah, blah, blah. But I did not get to the part about the uh, Nazi stuff. Well, I, I don't think the use of that quote and Lindbergh's fascism are a reflection of John Ostrander's politics, which are pretty explicitly leftist throughout his career. I think it is more reflective of the fact that, yeah, like you said, when you go Google it, it's not the first thing that shows up about her because they had such a long public life and public perception of the Lindberghs really went through like a bunch of different stages. You had the initial, she's the wife of a famous aviator and an aviatrix in her own right. Mm-hmm. Man, I love the word aviatrix. It's just cool sounding. And then you had their second bout of notoriety with the abduction or alleged abduction and death of their infant, mm-hmm. the Lindbergh baby. And I've read a bunch of things about how there are a lot of theories that Charles Lindbergh was complicit or perhaps guilty in killing his own baby and framed the carpenter for mm-hmm. it. And I tend to maybe give those more credence than I should because it's easy to get me to believe bad things about Nazis. Mm-hmm. But then after that, you had his political career and yeah, he uh, he was sent by the U.S. military to inspect Germany and was real impressed with what he saw. And Goebbels gave him a medal in Germany, and he came back and would strongly speak in favor of the U.S. signing a non-aggression, non-interference pact with Germany and gave interviews which were wildly anti-Semitic. And I don't think he ever specifically embraced the Nazi party, but both he and Anne Lindbergh spoke glowingly of Hitler and his policies in private correspondences. And then Anne published that 40-page treatise, which the Roosevelt administration 
called, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but they're like, it's basically the Bible for every American fascist and Nazi sympathizer in the country. And so from that period, then there was like about a 10 or 15 year period where they were very publicly frowned upon and they uh, were thought ill of by the public because of, you know, all of the Nazi shit. Mm-hmm. And then in the 70s, both Charles and Anne Lindbergh really embraced environmentalism, and that became what they were secondarily known for, apart from the plane flying and kidnapping. Wow. And Damn. so I think that was still a lot of the public perception of the two at that point. And I mean, she was a very good writer, but... Yeah, like I said, I feel like if you're a Nazi sympathizer, you don't get to be an inspirational poster, which is essentially what the last few panels of this book are. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, I just uh, remember the airplanes and the baby, but uh, yeah, it's good to have all that background. You see, this is why I'm afraid to say anything <laughs> about anything that I read in these <laughs> comics, because they're, you know, from several years ago. I'm just like, I don't know what kind of can of worms I'm opening here. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, wait, that Lindbergh? And something in my mind was like, wait, Lindbergh bad. Mm. I'm pretty sure Lindbergh bad. And then I looked into it more and was like, oh, yeah, Lindbergh bad. Mm. Yeah, good. Trust your gut. Lindbergh or cheese, on the other hand. Not bad. (laughs) No. Well, there's a bunch more to talk about, but I feel like it's all going to come up in the minutiae. Is there anything you want to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, I think let's dive in. Ah, because of of fish and puns and Aqualad? Mm -hmm. Now I can control your mind. Ah, fuck. (laughs) Rick, would you please sing us in? Corey is great. Damn it, Corey! Aha! We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Now, Corey, before we get into the rest of the minutia, It's time for my personal favorite segment. A word from our sponsors. (laughs) Hey, Corey, do you remember back when the show was called Teen Titan Wasteland? Uh, not really. Yeah, we drank a lot more back in the early days of the show, but... Those old Silver Age comics were pretty fun, weren't they? Oh, man, they were awesome. Like, you remember when the Titans fought Brom Stick, that old, like, Sturbridge Village cosplayer? Oh, totally, the original Weatherman. Or that weird robot named Honey Bucket for some reason? Who could forget your Honey Bucket experiences? And, uh, how Wally used to chug syrup. (laughs) Oh, irascible. Or how about the first appearance of Beast Boy in comic books? Hmm. Or when the gang fought Animal Vegetable Mineral Man? That doesn't ring a bell. Well, that's because we didn't cover those things, because they weren't in a Teen Titans comic. They were in an old Silver Age Doom Patrol comic. Aha. (laughs) Oh, shit. We don't need to go record a whole new podcast about Doom Patrol, do we? No, Corey. Thank God we don't. Because here's the good news. Somebody did it for us. Yay. And here's the better news. They're really good at it. Nice. Yeah. 
There is a podcast called Meet Your Doom that is hosted by friend of the show, Devin Tuhey, who you might remember from the about a million synopsis rhymes that he sent in. Absolutely. Well, Devin and his husband, Brian, are the hosts of Meet Your Doom. And every other week, they tackle an issue of the original Silver Age run of Doom Patrol and untangle the nonsensical science, body dysmorphia, and the overly complicated plans of the issue's villains and heroes and victims, which is pretty much everybody. All the while, they mix in their own evaluations on character, leftist political asides, and more than a few stories about Devin's mom. It's kind of a similar dynamic to ours, where there's a novice and an enthusiast. Uh... It says here, like Hub and Corey, but if they weren't brothers and kissed a lot off mic. <laughs> that kind of implies that we kiss a fair amount on mic, and I don't remember that, but like I said, we did drink a lot in the early episodes of the show. <laughs> anyway, Meet Your Doom is ideal for both newbies to Doom Patrol and for devotees. So, Meet Your Doom! Check it out, guys! You'll be glad you did. Nice. That sounds great. It really does. Meet Your Doom comes out every other Friday, and their next episode is this Friday, uh, January 29th, and they'll be covering Doom Patrol number 88, where they finally learn the backstory of Niles Calder, a.k.a. The Chief. Nice. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah, likewise. I always assumed his backstory was just that he was a jerk, but I guess maybe there's more to it than that. Only one way to find out. That's right, and that's listening to Meet Your Doom. Well, Corey, now that the most important segment's out of the way, what do you feel like hitting up next? Oof. Well, let's just get this one out of the way. Thank you for giving me a timestamp, because I couldn't come up with any. So I'm going to go with the uh, pathological liar skit. I actually had a couple of them. There was that one for sure. There was also, it's not a particularly specific timestamp, but you would get a couple of Monty Python references in this. Wait, uh, Specifically to the Holy Grail. How did I miss that? Where? After Cyborg has been decapitated and Aqualad is fleeing the throne room. Yes, he says, come back here, you coward. I'll bite your ankles off. And that feels a little bit like, I was like, oh, that's the Black Knight from the Holy Grail. And then in the next panel, you have the two guards at the gates of Atlantis being she's in here with us, but you can't come in. You're exiled. Yeah. I feel like that's the guards from Monty Python on the castle wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, We have a grail. It's very nice, etc. And so, yeah, I felt like they were making a couple of uh, of Monty Python references and the aforementioned John Lovett's pathological liar character. Wow. Nice work. Thanks. Well, here's a weird pair of categories. Every issue of a new Teen Titans comic, which this kind of is, has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this comic book, where technically only one Teen Titan appears, technically, who did you have as your Aqualad and who did you have as your Beast Boy? For his display of empathy at the end, I had Aqualad as my Aqualad. Mm-hmm. And at the risk of being just too damn on the nose, because that clown was creepy AF, I had Beast Boy as my Beast Boy. Yeah, I think that's a fair read on it. I actually had Nightwing as my Beast Boy. 
I also had Aqualad as my Aqualad, but I was just having a ton of trouble with this category because all of the Titans that appear in this issue are hallucinations and they're all total jerks. But I feel like the Titan that did the worst job because the job that the Titans were supposed to be doing in this issue was fucking over Aqualad. Mm -hmm. And I feel the one that did the worst job is Nightwing. And I feel like, as I said, that kind of makes sense if we view the Titans as memories that Aqualad has being used as puppets by Steve Dayton, the character who he has the most experience with and thinks the least of, perhaps, is Beast Boy. And Beast Boy does a pretty good job fucking with Aqualad and fucking with Steve Dayton, which are the respective things that he was called upon to do. And Nightwing, who I can't even remember if he's even met Mento before. Mm. If they have, they've had very limited interactions. He does the worst job, which kind of makes sense. Like, he just kind of doesn't really do anything. He shows up and he's like, hey, nice biological dad you got here. Shame if anything were to happen to him. But uh, Jericho does all the heavy lifting with uh, being a creep and taking over Aqualad's body and making him kill his dad and then having his dad turn into Aquaman. And yeah, so I feel like Nightwing, given the task they were setting out to do, did the worst job. You know, I, I, I see where you're going with it, and I get it. I was left with a super creeped out impression of, of him and Jericho, because the last time we see him is they're dragging Aqualad's pregnant mom, pregnant with Aqualad, apparently, mm-hmm. off. Yeah. And it's just a, like that feeling of, you know, you empathize with Aqualad, where he's like, you know, don't kidnap my mom. And he's freaking out, and it's just so fucking creepy. Yeah, it is a very creepy scene. I would just apply most of the malice in that scene to Jericho. Which is fair, because Jericho's face is also so creepy when he takes over Aqualad's body. I don't know why it keeps coming up, but he looks like one of those critters from the movie Critters. Oh, he absolutely does. What I first went with was he he reminded me of the way that uh, Rob Liefeld drew Toad from the X-Men comics in the 90s. But yeah, just that like huge grin with it's just like, that is too many teeth. Nothing should have that many teeth. That's too many. Boo. It's a dream. People are supposed to be losing their teeth, not gaining extra teeth. Uh, That makes it worse. Ugh. What was your favorite panel? Man, that is tough to say. That is tough to it say. It really is. There's so many to choose from and so many different styles that they're drawn in, even. Mm-hmm. So starting with Goofy and Surreal, I think I'll go on page 16 with what I call Splat. <laughs> and <laughs> that is uh, Dayton getting whacked in the face with a fish by Beast Boy. Specifically a flounder. <laughs> He makes a joke about floundering, but it's not drawn like a flounder. No, that thing has eyes on both sides of its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Boo! It's, it's more like a, a bass. Mm. Wide mouth bass. But it's just so creepy and funny at the same time. Yeah, I had the fish slap as one of mine, too. I honestly wrote down like six or seven, and I don't think we're going to get into all of them. But for the more traditionally drawn panels... I really liked the Rita slash Aqua Girl page where 
the Fresh Maker and Aqualad kind of have their Martha moment where they both see a split vision of Rita slash Tula and are like, no! Mm. It's just really, really well done. Yeah, that's a good one. Everything about that, the background, the, the tears in their eyes, it's all just really nicely drawn. On the other end of the scale, in terms of the more surreal panels, page 14, the full-page spread of Aqualad just freaking out and realizing that his head is being fucked with. I just called it toothy anime freakout. It's really, really disturbing. Yeah, I think that one may be my favorite. I just called it, no! That is a reasonable thing to call it, as that is the entirety of the dialogue on that panel. Mm -hmm. I think my absolute favorite, though, is on page 10, and we've discussed it a little bit, and we likely will discuss it a little bit more in an upcoming category, but the Be True to Your School Titans waylaying Aqualad and preventing him from rescuing Tula, I love that panel so much. There's just so much that's being conveyed in it. Uh, we talked about Cheshire and her ski goons that are all hanging out in the background. The different way that each of the Titans is portrayed in it, with Donna being the cheerleader and Robin being the little nerd. And the Flash is going through his, like, he's not really interested in things, so he's doing the yawn, and he's wearing, like, a jacket with leather elbow pads. And Speedy is the cool guy who's the tough degenerate wearing a leather jacket, and Hawk is there wearing his football uniform. Mm -hmm. There's just so much going on, and that's the one that just led me to the most speculation about, oh, okay, so it's images that seem derived from the old-school Teen Titans, like, in terms of that's the way they were characterized back then, but... It's in the context of this more recent story that was just done. And then the like 50s greaser looking Cheshire and her gang in the background. And they're all underwater. There was just so much going on. And I just loved that panel. Yeah. So I had a question for you about the, the dialogue on there. Mm -hmm. I can't pin down if Donna is supposed to be like from, I don't know, Boston or somewhere in the valley in California. <laughs> She says, come on, guys. <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the come on and the preponderance of likes do seem kind of at odds with one another. Perhaps like me, she's a transplant from the East Coast who ended up on the West Coast and ended up with the worst of both worlds in that, in that exchange. I think that's a good assessment. Yeah, that's the only way I can make sense of it. Come on, guys. Yeah, I do really like that. I feel like the come on... That seems more like 50s to me for some reason. But then the rest of it is more Valley Girl talk, which we see when she's just like, hey, like the Titans need you too. So leave your gnarly girlfriend, okay? Mm -hmm. Do your duty, Titans forever. It's this weird mix of like 50s and 80s aesthetics. And I feel like it really works for that merger of old Teen Titans, new Teen Titans, you know? Yeah, good call. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you want to focus on? Oof, boy. So we already talked about the Yutang clan. I, I liked the, uh, <laughs> the robot body that the unfortunate depiction of Cyborg was wearing. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Page 8, 
Gar's pathological liar getup, checkered black and white jacket with a like a fuchsia tie, very eighties. Very, very eighties like used car salesman, which is, I, if memory serves, a variation of one of the outfits that John Lovitz would wear for that character. Mm. We also have, as we talked about in the most recent one, the various getups that each of the Titans are wearing: the football uniform, the board professor slash letterman thing that the flash has going on very confusing Uh, wonder girls cheerleader outfit which really just kind of highlights how close to a cheerleader outfit her old titans costume was basically she just has more of an updo and is carrying a pom-pom but mostly in that one i love robin's nerd look like putting a bow tie on that robin uniform just cracked me up Mm mm-hmm Giving him a little uh, elf alpha hair sticking up in the back. Uh-huh, and a pair of Coke bottle glasses. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a giant book that just says math. Pretty good. One of the other minor fashion choices that I don't know if this is a quality of the dream or if this is part of her actual uniform at some point, but having Mera, uh, the queen of Atlantis, have flippers on her outfit, like swim fins for feet Mm -hmm. i don't remember that being a part of her outfit but it makes so much sense i don't know why everyone in atlantis doesn't have those oh totally i guess just their sea strength and legs uh i mean they don't need them yeah but couldn't hurt couldn't hurt the main thing that i kept thinking of and one of the things that i spent the most time thinking about in this comic book was the weird clown outfits that both steve dayton and beast boy ended up wearing in the Freshmaker's Circus Delusion. I've never understood this. Why do clowns have those big Elizabethan rough collars as part of their outfits? Uh, just because they're stupid looking? Yeah, I guess. It made me think, I think partly because he's a jack-in-the-box in this, uh, Steve Dayton is, and he's wearing that. It's like, I wonder if they have to put those on a jack-in-the-box to keep them from trying to go down on themselves. <laughs> like, you know, like when your dog has like stitches in there from getting fixed, they have to put the uh, the cone over their head. Seems like the Elizabethan collar performs the same function. So I wonder if just like, well, clowns are super bendy. We don't want them getting up to any shenanigans when they're in front of children. Better put the cone on them. <laughs> uh. Were Elizabethans super into that? I mean, they probably didn't get enough calcium, so probably their bones were bendier. Anti-autofellatio device? Yeah, I mean, better safe than sorry. I I don't, man, I don't know how how your mind works, but uh, maybe so. I mean, it's just, I I don't know what other possible explanation there is for that collar. Fashion, who can explain it? Well, I think we just made it clear. I can. It's to keep Elizabethans and clowns from autofellatio. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? This also was tough, but based on the assumption that Steve Dayton is largely responsible for a lot of what's going on here with all the hallucinations Mm -hmm. and the people turning into skeletons and just the high, high drama quotient. I gave it to the Freshmaker himself because it is his own mind 
but conjured Gar to dress as a creepy clown, call him daddy, and slap him in the face with a fish. <laughs> I think that's a solid choice. Thank you. I was very tempted to give it to the Fresh Maker, but I instead decided to give it to the creepy hallucination of Cyborg for just one very specific reason. My own experience hanging out with people that were in the drama club led me to believe that there is not a more drama club move than continually quoting Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> oh, with the accent, though? Yeah. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, I had to give it to Cyborg. Uh, God, <laughs> imagining him doing that with the accent is just so disconcerting. It really is. Well, Corey, it's now time for our most popular category, Battle of the Band Names. In last week's Twitter poll, we saw Get the Squid Drunk pitched in a fevered battle against stoner sludgecore band The Dankness of the Vault. And it was a closer contest than we've seen in a while. Hmm. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it was within a few percentage points. But Get the Squid Drunk did again emerge victorious. Dang. Can nothing slow down the ska-infused sea shanty cover band juggernaut that is Get the Squid Drunk? That remains to be seen. Were you able to find any band names in this issue that you want to put up against them? I got some ideas. Uh, I don't know how well they're going to hold up, but um, the first one I had is from the title. And this is, uh, I don't know, probably like a Boston or New York hardcore band from back in the day called Scar Tissue. Oh, totally. I would be shocked if there were not a band already called that. I didn't I mean, Google I know it. there I was figured... a Red Hot Chili Peppers song called that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm thinking these guys are more like, I don't know, Slapshot or Gorilla Biscuits or something of that. Oh, like. gotcha. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I used to like Gorilla Biscuits, but when they changed their name to Civ, I just kind of lost interest. Mm. <laughs> A real thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> One of my options was Strop of Hate, Ooh. Uh, which is just, it's a nice phrase that the caption work does describing the mental contest between Steve and Aqualad. Find the weakness. Hone it on the strop of hate. And I was like, ooh, strop of hate. That, that sounds like a thing. They seem like they might be on the Crow soundtrack. Mm, mm -hmm. So that was one option I had. Another in a very different direction was Cheshire and her goofs. Oh, I had that too. I think that's... Maybe my top vote. It's vying with one other. I see them as like a fun party band that's like maybe regionally famous. They do a lot of 50s covers. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Who, who's the local one that's like that? Oh, we got, we got one of those? Yeah, I can't remember. I feel like every region has one of those where it's just like, oh, I've seen that name on a lot of flyers for baby boomers having beach parties. <laughs> Oh, that's that's fun. Yeah, like just kind of a, a good natured like sha na na, but not a cappella. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually pretty much exactly what I was thinking. Hi there, this is Editor Hub here in the future. You know, it drove me nuts for about three days, but finally it came to me in a flash. The name of the local band I was thinking of was 
Johnny Limbo and the Lugnuts. They formed in 1978 and are still available for bookings. What other options do you have? My other one sounds like an 80s comic book title, and it was uh, Adolescent Mutant Undersea Wizard. Oh, I like that. (laughs) It's kind of a mouthful, but... There's a lot going on there, but... Ooh. Adolescent Mutant Undersea Wizard? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't know, man. The wizard part is kind of what won me over in that one. I think that's a pretty good name. The other option I had was Your Gnarly Girlfriend. (laughs) Pretty good. Like, I can see that being like a a My Chemical Romance type of band, you know? Mm. Gosh, I don't know. Of those, what are you thinking? I like Cheshire and her goofs. It's just, it's nice to have something so wholesome after all of these (laughs) debauched sea shanties. Fuck it. It's the one that we both found. So I think, I think that should probably be our rule. If we both came up with it, then that's the one we go with. Yeah, let's go with Cheshire and her goofs. I wish we were able to modify it a little bit, but by the arbitrary rules that I made up, we aren't, because I think Cheshire and the goofs would be a better name. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Let's go with the na-na-capella sha-na-na stylings of Cheshire and her goofs. I like it. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo do you think is worth talking about? Well, we had a a twerp that was pretty good. Uh Uh-huh. Tagar. We had a aqua scum. We sure did. That, that one hurt a little bit, but my favorite because it includes the sound that the thing that is the insult makes is chicken of the sea, babwak! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he threw in that little Morris Day at the end. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that was my favorite too. I don't know if it quite counts as an insult, but I do feel like you got to at least mention the um Floundering after me again, eh, daddy? (laughs) That's that's just creepy. It's not, it's not. Yeah, that's more creepy than it is an insult. You're right. The other one which bordered on insult was the uh, cyborg insult. And I believe I said there was a maybe count of three in four panels. Uh, It's actually four in four panels because I missed one of the mebbies in this. Because this one panel has three mebbies. It ends with, maybe you got nutso jeans, fishy. (laughs) Fishy. Yeah, the fishy. So derisive. Uh, I don't want to give it that because I don't want to credit any of Cyborg's dialogue in this because it was very disturbing and read like a racist caricature. Agreed. But I did like that he called him fishy and said that maybe he's got nutso jeans. Mm Mm-hmm. Corey, I have but one final question I have to put to you. Okay. But I don't know what it is, because we know what Aqualad's up to in this issue, Mm. but what's a different Teen Titans character up to in this issue? Could be a Waspoot? What's Speedy probably up to? Could be a Whamchpoot? What's Mr. Jupiter probably up to? What do you have a person doing in the year of our Lord, 1987, and the month of our Lord, May. Yeah. I went with the uh, richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the world. I guess hallucinogenic balloon incidents is accepted. All right. Well, what's our old friend Lauren Jupiter up to? So you know that 
Mr. J has interests in a lot of medical colleges around. Just, you know, he dabbles and likes to have his fingers in a lot of pies, just in case somebody comes up with something for longevity or, you know, new superpowers or, or anything that might be useful for, for his, uh, his empire. Oh, yeah, he's a famous pie-fingered dilettante. Exactly. So, turns out that Michael Jackson had developed this extreme fascination with the, with the movie The Elephant Man mm-hmm. about a man, John Merrick, who suffered this, you know, horrible, disfiguring bone disease, and they made a movie about him. And anyway, long story short, his remains are at the London Hospital Medical College in England, and, you know, they're for research purposes. And that was actually owned by Mr. Jupiter, and mm. Michael Jackson's first attempt, it was, I think, uh, May 29th of that year, offered $500,000 after being allowed to, to see him, uh, to see the remains, that is. And gosh, that's just, I don't know, the press got wind of it and it, it kind of blew up. And they interviewed uh, David Edwards, the chief administrator of the medical college, and said, well, we <laughs> weren't terribly keen on, on him coming to see the remains, but uh, he was allowed to see it because it just would have caused more publicity if he was not allowed to see it. And uh, Mr. Jupiter was like, no, I'm not going to sell that for half a million dollars. And Michael Jackson doubled down, offered a million, and still wouldn't sell it. And uh, so that that's one of the things that Mr. J was probably up to in May of 1987. Mm. Negotiating, but not really, with Michael Jackson for the remains of the Elephant Man. Good for him. <laughs> I guess. Found the one person in the world less trustworthy with young people than himself (laughs) and denied him access to a weird skeleton. Yeah. Man, have you seen that movie? The Elephant Man? Yeah. Uh, I think when I was a, like a kid, I I don't really remember it. Man, we had to watch that in my English class in high school and it's a really good movie. It's a really early David Lynch movie. I cried so much. Everybody in the class cried so much. And we were in high school, so we were all just trying to avoid eye contact with each other and pretending we weren't crying. It was so awkward. I'm sure it was hilarious to our teacher. (laughs) Wow. That is a memory. Yeah. Well, that may be what Mr. Jupiter was probably up to. But, but Corey, did you ever wonder to yourself, what was Speedy doing in May of 1987? besides wearing a leather jacket and holding a knife and being cool (laughs) he did look pretty damn cool you put a leather jacket over a superhero uniform that's a damn good look i can see why the avengers went through that phase where they all had leather jackets i didn't know that was a thing really it was a thing in the 90s where a lot of super groups just had leather jackets the avengers i think it was part of their official uniform that they all just looked like kids out trick-or-treating where their mom was just like yeah but it's pretty cold so over the superman uniform you're gonna need to put a little bomber jacket but yeah cyclops had one for a while too it was a whole thing wow but yeah it looks good on speedy but that's just a hallucination of speedy What the actual Speedy was doing in May of 1987 is, you know, trying to find a fun couples activity he could do with the mother of his child and the woman with whom he was trying to make a romantic go of it, Cheshire. Hmm. You know, she gave the goofs the night off and they're really trying to bond, but they don't have all that much in common outside of their physical relationship. So 
Speedy figured, you know, we need a fun couples activity we can do. You're a super assassin. I'm a government agent sometimes. What can we do? And what they decided to do was to get together and kill William Casey, the former director of the CIA. What? See, Cheshire had some contracts out on him, and uh, Speedy's government agents were like, well, you know, he kind of made a real hash of things with the whole Iran-Contra scandal getting out while he was head of the CIA. So we're going to okay this. So, you know, they they started practicing their various archery skills and decided, you know, they're going to go kill this guy together. Mm. But then, on May 6th, William Casey died of uh, pneumonia. So it, it actually, it was a weird phrasing the way it said. It was, I don't think it was quite this, but it sounded like he had aspirational pneumonia. Um, I think he died of aspiration due to pneumonia. But I was just like, oh, I wonder what it was. It just like a really bad cold that had, uh, was putting on airs. <laughs> What's aspirational pneumonia? Uh, it's not something generally you would aspire to. So No. But they were pretty disappointed because they'd put in all that training and they were just amped up to, you know, go murder a former head of the CIA together. It was an activity that Cheshire had picked out for them and Speedy felt bad that they weren't able to do it. So uh, to blow off some steam, they entered themselves into an archery competition. And that's why on May 15th, they set the pair's archery record. They set the record for mixed doubles archery. And what's interesting about that is for the first time in his career, Speedy was decent at having a secret identity. So I guess Cheshire must have been a good influence on him. And that's the reason why I was able to find out that a record for pairs archery was set in 1987 on May 15th. But I don't know what Paris Archery is and wasn't able to find that out. And I don't know who set the record. But you know enough. Great job, Speedy, for once in your goddamn life maintaining a secret identity. So uh, good for you having a nice time with your lady friend doing some mixed doubles archery and I guess setting a world record. <laughs> wow, it's, it's nice to hear him doing something positive. Yeah, and that's what Speedy was probably up to in May of 1987. Nice. Well, Corey, I had a great time talking with you about this weird-ass comic book. Same. We'll be back next week with another Defenders book, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks and get back to the regularly scheduled Teen Titans program. But it was nice to see what Aqualad was up to in all this time while he was kidnapped by Steve Dayton and the regular title completely forgot about him. You see at the end of this, he says he's going to go back and tell the Titans where Steve Dayton was, mm -hmm. but I guess he just didn't. Yeah, he may have changed his mind on the swim over. Yeah, apparently the time that Steve spent torturing him did impair his ability to control marine life later on. That was one of the reasons they gave for changing his power set to he could still communicate with fish, but he could only ask them nicely to do things. I didn't know that happened. Yeah, it didn't seem to really make any difference because he's still Aqualad, so he's incredibly charismatic, so the fish always did what he asked them to anyway, but he just asked not told from then on. Hmm. So overall, kind of a positive change, I would say. Yeah, not bad. Anyway, we'll be back to the regular Teen Titans series where none of that shit's ever going to come up in a couple weeks. 
In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland.gmail.com. Or you can hit us up at our post office box. That's at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We recently received a package from a listener named uh, Brian, who sent us some rad shit. He sent us a stack of comics and some fancy vinegar from a vinegar store. So I'll have to get some of that over to you, Corey. Sweet. Thanks, Brian. Uh, more Not necessarily sweet, more acidic, I would say. Um, you know what I mean. I do indeed. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <Jeez. laughs> Speaking of the cervix. Anyway, if you'd like to get into touch with us on social media, you can probably do that. Uh, just, you know, look up, uh, tighten up the defense and say it three times into your mirror and we'll appear behind you and murder you. Nope. No, wait, nope. that's no, nope. we won't do that. No hope. But it's probably best not to risk it. I never understood that Candyman thing. Why would why would you say that? The risk versus reward. I, I know it's a made up thing and it's never going to happen. But, uh, you know, what, what what possible benefit do you get from it? I don't I don't get it either. Yeah. Never done it. Never gonna. Same. But, you know, that's not how you uh, how you find us on social media. You just, uh, you know, type it into your uh, your Bing search engine and ask Jeeves where we are. And then we'll probably appear. But we won't murder you. Speaking of technical stuff, I have a like, you know, when you're listening to the radio and they're like, hey, we fucked up that one time. We regret the error. Yeah. So you were totally right. I corrected you erroneously that basic uh, was actually called basic the programming language from back in the day but you were you were right it was it is basic and and it was just commonly referred to as basic so my apologies ah because of the anti-italian bias in computer programming for reasons <laughs> but but yeah sorry well th- thank you cory that's uh-huh. that's nice to know Anytime. I mean, I think we all know I'm the technological whiz here. <laughs> it's true, it's true. Anyway, if you can't find us by talking backwards into your mirror. Oh, did you try talking backwards into your mirror? I can't talk I can't talk backwards. No? Mm-mm. Well then how do you send Mr. Mixtapitalik back to his home dimension? <laughs> Hasn't come up. You're a lucky man. Anyway, uh, if you're having trouble finding us on social media, there is another place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Mm. We'll be there, just looking into the mirror, because we're so pretty, but not saying (laughs) anything backwards into it, or forwards into it, because we don't want to summon murderers, or apparently banish Mr. Mixtapitalik. Yep. So, thanks for letting us in there. Yeah. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash tt wasteland if you do you get access to a whole bunch of bonus stuff there's the monthly podcast what the duck a podcast most foul but with a w because he's a duck that's the full name of the show that's the howard the duck podcast that i co-host with my wife lisa uh there's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comics up there and a whole bunch of other stuff too if you donate you get exclusive access to rather a lot of content But there's another reason to donate, and one that to me is more important, and it's to show that you care about the show and would like us to be able to continue making it. It really means a heck of a lot to me, and and I appreciate you guys taking the time and, uh, frankly, the money to do that. It makes the show possible and makes me buying groceries possible. So, thanks. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, you can do so. 
by by spreading the show <laughs> spreading the show around spread the show um you gotta make sure to do it evenly use a putty knife or an offset spatula oh yeah gotta offset that spatula mm, you gotta like use some kind of a counterweight like tom hanks would use jamming his oscars up his butt <laughs> to keep from being overbalanced by his huge testicles <laughs> yep <laughs> just like that if you would like to support the show in a non-financial way uh why don't you leave a review of the show in a place where reviews can be left what are some places reviews can be left um i don't know i literally can't think of any place right now physical or metaphorical how about you Corey? yeah does um anywhere that you get your podcasts oh sure that'd be a place uh-huh yeah. Whoa, is that, is that a literal or a metaphoric place? How does that work? Um, is a website address a place? Also leave them on. Corey. Huh? Is, is a website a, a place? No, not a physical place. It's all. Well, I know it's not a physical place, but. Oh, man. But it's something people see. So It's a good thing this show's almost over because my mind is blown, Corey. I'm sorry. That's okay. You can finish it out from here, right? Yeah. Yeah, five stars is a good thing for a review to have. Okay, good. All right, take us home, Corey. Until next time. Come on. Ah, oh, thanks, Corey. Mm-hmm. Come on, Daddy. Oh. Okay, bye. Thanks, bye. And they knew it. I'm going to open a beer. Do it. Okay. Nice. I mentally commanded you to do that. Oh, also verbally. <laughs> hey, I didn't give you any channel to swim up. What's going on? <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, you used a lot of bass in your voice, and a bass is a type of fish. So. <laughs> oh, damn. He got me. Got me with the aqua, aqua logic. Yeah, why do you think I always talk in this falsetto? <laughs>